This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, and I am all alone in my basement this week. A somewhat unusual episode. I'm going to bring you up to speed in just a moment. But first of all, let me tell you what's going on. Stephanie is in Israel with Ben. Some of you are doing that Tel Aviv meetup with her. You have no doubt by now heard where the meetup is happening. In fact, I'm losing all track of time. You might have already met up with her. I might have heard all about it. It might have been all over Twitter and Instagram and my Slack channel. If so, I hope you had a great time. Liel is off doing whatever Liel does. He's shooting guns or hanging out with his kids or reading a page of Talmud or I, I, I don't even know. Let me tell you what's going on with me. And then I'm going to tell you about the guests we have. We've pre-recorded some really interesting guests for you. We have a lot of cool podcast business. But first of all, I want to center you with where Mark Oppenheimer is right now. It's Thursday night, August the 8th. It's a few days after the episode was recorded that a lot of you have already heard where my daughter Clara turned the Shema into the Shamu, and we talked to Taffy Brodesser-Ackner about her novel. That was a great episode, but it's a couple nights after that, and it's a couple nights before Tisha B'Av. A couple quick thoughts on that. Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, is what it means. My mother always thought that it sounded like Tushy, Tush above, Tush below. It's always kind of a funny holiday for us growing up, and then at some point I discovered, holy cow, it actually commemorates the destruction of the Second Temple and other tragedies throughout Jewish history. So for those of you who don't know what the ninth of Av is, what Tisha B'Av is, is Jews get together in synagogue on the night of Tisha B'Av and they sit on low stools or on the floor and they hear the Book of Lamentations chanted. I've actually never heard Echa, the Book of Lamentations, chanted. But by the time you hear this podcast, I will have because I'm about to go to Pittsburgh where I'm going to do Tisha B'Av with people who have lived real Jewish tragedy in real time. So look, this year, for those of you who have never given a thought to Tisha B'Av, who have considered it a minor holiday, just take a minute or 18 minutes and think, if you didn't on what's now last Saturday night when Tisha B'Av started, think about the fact that Jews have a holiday that every year looks back at those tragic times. We are people who live in the present and look forward and are optimistic and live in the here and now. We don't talk about waiting to get our reward in the hereafter. We really want to live life to its fullest in the time that we've been granted on earth. But of course, throughout Jewish history and human history, there are people who get a raw deal. And sometimes the Jewish people collectively get a raw deal. And that's what this holiday is about. Was today mournful for me? No, no, it wasn't. I hung out with uh, my brother Dan and his wife Jessica and their three kids and my parents. We were up at the Holyoke Canoe Club in Holyoke, Massachusetts. We went swimming and then we had pizza back at my parents' house. I'm a really blessed guy. That's not a word I ever really use much. It sounds a little hokey, maybe a little Christian. I, I don't know, a little not me, not to put down anyone who uses it, but I just felt today the swimming, the extended family, I felt really lucky, really blessed. I also want to say I'm so grateful, especially in this season when we think about times when things have been harder for Jews. I'm so grateful to, to still live in a land that's quite safe for Jews, all things considered. And I'm grateful to do this podcast that's so proudly and openly and ridiculously Jewish week in and week out. Let me tell you about the couple guests we have this week. First, we're going to sit down with Cindy Shupak. You might know that name uh, from the credits at the end of Sex and the City. She also has written for Modern Family and Everybody Loves Raymond. She's an Emmy-winning TV writer. And her latest film, which she co-wrote and directed, is called Otherhood. It streams on Netflix. It's about three mothers whose grown sons seem to have forgotten them. And so together, they go to New York City to like get back into their sons' lives. So funny thing— 
The interview was recorded before Felicity Huffman was part of that college admissions scandal. So that's why you don't hear the scandal mentioned. And then Stephanie is going to chat with Aaron Davis, who's host of the dating show Bubbies Know Best, and with S.J. Mendelson, who is one of those bubbies. So the premise of that show is that three grandmothers meet the contestant, ask some probing questions, and then select a date for them from a bunch of prospective suitors, and then kibitzing ensues. But before we do that, I just want to say Deborah Zwiefelhofer. Who is that? Deborah Zwiefelhofer is the best named donor on our fund drive. She gave some money last week. So did a lot of people. Matthew Miller, Jonathan Karsh, Rita Sachs, Genevieve Spears, Daniel Kubing, Deborah Povia, and dozens of others. But the name of the week, Deborah Zwiefelhofer. Look, give me 20 more seconds. Go to tabletmag.com slash donate. If your donation is $180 or more, you're going to get the newest Jewish encyclopedia, the book that Liel and Stephanie and I wrote, ahead of the pub date. You'll get it a little bit early. If any of you has a name as great as Deborah Zwiefelhofer, you can count on it being mentioned on our show. Tabletmag.com slash donate. All right. Let's have a listen to all of us sitting down a few weeks back with Cindy Shupak, the co-writer and the director of Otherhood. Our Jewish guest this week is Cindy Shupak. She's an Emmy Award-winning TV writer and producer. She's worked on Sex and the City, Modern Family, Everybody Loves Raymond. Her new film is Otherhood, which she directed and co-wrote. Welcome, Cindy. Thank Welcome. you. And which stars every great every living great actress on the planet. What a seriously well-cast movie that was. Uh, it took us a long time to make it, and you kind of go through iterations where you're thinking of different women as the women. But I feel like we had the perfect cast. Finally, you just said to the director, just get me all the good ones. How about Angela I don't want to choose. <laughs> Felicity Huffman and Patricia Arquette. It's insane. I know, I feel like I learned to drive on a self-driving car, basically, as a first-time director of a film. <laughs> and then, and then, like, the other people cast, like Molly Bernard was amazing, and then Jake oh. Hoffman. And Heidi Gardner from SNL. Oh, I love her, yeah. Yes, 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 Jake yes. Jake Lacey, Cinqua Walls. I know. I wanted to love every character and understand the point of view of every character. When you see the movie, Molly Bernard has just a bad date with Jake Hoffman, and she's, like, newly divorced, and he doesn't really want to be there, and... She was so lovable and funny. I feel like I wanted to watch the Molly Bernard show after that. I was saying to Stephanie earlier, I felt like she actually stole the movie. I thought her, I thought she was coming back at the end. Because like, actually, I think they kind of like each other in a sort of hateration kind of no way. No spoilers. Yeah, sorry. Well, here's the funny trivia thing. Heidi Gardner from SNL came in for that role. So Jake Hoffman, once he was cast, he was so lovely. He plays Patricia Arquette's son. It's a movie about mothers and their adult sons. And he plays the Jewish son. She's trying to fix him up. And he's kind of in love with... Still a girl that broke his heart, who is played by Heidi Gardner. But he so he goes on this bad date at his mother's recommendation with Molly Bernard. So he came into the auditions of both those roles and read with the girls. And Heidi Gardner came in for the bad date. And there was just some kind of chemistry. And at the end, uh, Jake said, well, it, maybe it could work out between this character and her. And I was like, no, that's not the <laughs> that's movie not at the script. all. <laughs> it can't. So we had her come back in. I love it how actors are like, I have an idea for you, writer, director. How about my character falls in love with this gorgeous girl? And then the whole movie is just us talking. So the movie is called Otherhood, which is a play on motherhood. There's like an opening voiceover that I think will set the movie up as well as it needs to be for our listeners. It's Angela Bassett saying... Everyone's heard of the city that never sleeps. What about the mothers who never sleep because their boys move to the city and never call? <laughs> and I was like, in. I'm in. <laughs> I love it. Sold. That whole voiceover was kind of late in the game. I just realized like the whole premise of the movie 
somehow might be lost. <laughs> Will you set up the movie for us? Sure. It's three mothers whose sons grew up together. And since I have an eight-year-old, I sort of relate to this because I think when I went into this, I thought, you know, I don't need new friends. But then suddenly, this is your tribe. These mothers of kids, you are, no matter what age you are, I am now the mother of an eight-year-old. And these are my people, the other mothers of eight-year-olds. And so these women, their sons grew up together in Poughkeepsie. They went through a lot of life changes. Angela Bassett, when we meet her, her character, Carol, she's recently widowed. They each have one son. And so their sons have moved to New York. And on Mother's Day, they are sitting together having brunch and they feel marginalized and forgotten, these women. And so they decide to drive to New York. and Cool, because none of their none of their kids call. They get a text. Yeah. Patricia Arquette's character, uh, Jillian, gets a text. And he says, I texted you. And she says, I birthed you. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the great exchanges in the movie. You know, that's so satisfying to hear because that was one of my favorite lines that when we filmed it, I said, this is going to be in the trailer. This has to be good. Like it has to be just right. I could hear it in my head. And so we finally got it. And now, of course, it's in the trailer. And I love that you quoted that. (laughs) You're like, Patricia Arquette, can you do this well, please? (laughs) Yeah, like she needs any. So they come to the city. Yeah, they come to the city to make their sons love them again. They decide they're just going to surprise them. Because, of course, if you planned ahead or if you called, they would have a reason it's not a good time. So they surprise their sons. And their goal is to move in with their sons for a few days and reconnect. And there's a few uh, missteps where Helen, who's played by Felicity Huffman, basically loses her nerve and goes to a hotel and doesn't admit it. But they all end up trying to influence their sons, but they realize that their lives are the ones that maybe need changing. And really, Otherhood, for me, that was a title I changed later because I would realize it's kind of the stage of life that women are living longer. We have this sort of extra quarter of life that we didn't used to have. So I think it used to feel like you're single, maybe you're married and have kids, then you retire and head off into the sunset. And now there's this extra quarter of time where we're still very viable, sexy, fun, have professional goals that maybe aren't the same profession we had originally. And I think this is for women many times in our lives that you have to redefine yourself. So it's sort of redefining who you are, what you want once your official job is not mother anymore. It's other. It's other. other. It's other. I've actually had this conversation with my mother where I've said to her, sometimes at times of frustration, uh, when she can't babysit because she and my dad are taking a trip or because some of the work <laughs> because of work or whatever. Uh-huh. And I say, do you remember your mother at age 74, mom? And my mother's older than your characters. But I said, your mother, like she wore sensible shoes. She wore a dress that took a slip. Like there was a, you know, she got her hair set once a week. She was completely stable. She was like, we knew we could surprise her. We would drive from Western Massachusetts to Philadelphia six hours and just pop in because we knew at 3 p.m. on a right. Tuesday. She would be. Walter and Rebecca <laughs> would be in the house on Carpenter Lane. Yeah. They weren't going anyway they weren't spontaneously improvising so what anything. was your argument to her that your mother shouldn't be traveling she should be like available for you at all times absolutely just, just that she shouldn't be still iterating and generative and finding new selves that she should just stabilize and be reliable so that i can iterate and generate and be neurotic and find you sound new like self. a millennial i do i know i know i think that that is the collective sort of societal pressure or that's what women women are kind of having to learn to react against because you do still want to be there for your kids and you i mean i met with actresses who said my kids have graduated college, but they might still come home. So we kind of still want to be home. Like you still want to provide a home base. And it takes a while to realize you can actually like the empty nest. You can actually leave the nest as well. <laughs> and these were really nice home bases, by the way. These were like yeah. Nancy Meyer designed. Oh, home my ba- God. I would that I had a home base like you know, Angela Bassett's house in this movie. When I started this process, I said I don't want it to be Nancy Meyer's aspirational because I love Nancy Meyer's in her movies. But it always feels like this crazy world, unattainable and everything's white. 
And then it turned out it was Cindy Shupak aspirational. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's Poughkeepsie. It's like yeah. it's not like Santa Monica. So yeah. you're like you get the sense that they they have to go far to get to New York City. You know, like yeah. they're not right. No, and those that. locations were gorgeous. Like the house that um, is Jillian's, Patricia Arquette's, is this gorgeous old farmhouse on a lot of land, and um, there were chickens and bees, and it was it was fun to find each of their houses to match their personalities. So Patricia Arquette is Jillian Lieberman. Yes, and she's the Jewish mother. She converted. We find out her son basically says, why do you want me to set you up with a Jewish girl? You're not even Jewish. Um, and she's like, I converted before you were born. I converted for you. For you. He says, you converted for dad. <laughs> she converted so she could pressure him into marrying a nice Jewish girl, basically. Well, Phil Rosendahl, who was on your show, his wife, Monica, converted. And she's the only Jewish woman I know in L.A. who actually has a sukkah oh, that's yeah. up. I mean, that I love is, how converts, that is exactly right. converts do it by the book. So yeah. I kind of loved that this character could be maybe you don't buy her as she might not look Jewish or whatever, feel Jewish, or maybe she wasn't born Jewish, but she, you know, is very Jewish more than most of us. <laughs> I thought she played it perfectly. She seemed exactly like someone who'd been marinating in the Judaism intentionally for a long time. Right? Yes. I, thought, I thought it was like dead on. Oh, good. Um, I feel like all the sons were like kind of sweet, kind of asshole. Like they're just like guys in a lot of ways. <laughs> I think that kind of sweet, kind of asshole. The, the yeah. word you're looking for is men. Men, they're men. But like that character, Jake Hoffman, says a lot of mean things to his mother. Mm-hmm. I think that's the most like cutting and awful thing you can say is like you're not to your mother, like you're not even Jewish. And, <laughs> like that he doesn't consider her Jewish. And we're like, we've done conversion episodes. We've talked about all of these things that these hoops that converts have to jump through. Don't and be a to judgy be, asshole. Yeah, to be accepted by the community. And then you're like, oh my God, your own son. Yeah. Such well, a to be fair, dick. he says you weren't even Jewish. Oh, okay. But still, yeah, he's And like he's you said, you think you said that he says that even though you wrote the movie. <laughs> well, I can't remember if he actually said it. There's a lot of ad-libbing happening. <laughs> this is your directorial debut, right? Of film, of, of yeah. Of film, right. And you have a long career in TV. TV, as we said, I can't let you get out of here without asking about Sex in the City, which you worked on for the whole run or for starting the second season to the, the end. Mark is totally a Samantha, by the way. Uh, oh, well, <laughs> uh, I've <laughs> seen every episode of that several times. In fact, that and our favorite show, Beverly Hills 90210, are probably the two shows I've rewatched the most in, in my lifetime. <laughs> so and, you're a Christian sorry? Davis. So you're a Christian Davis diva yeah, hey, oh, from the beginning. Oh, my God. Just got hotter in here. Does Sex in the City still hold up for you in the era of Me Too and different gender politics? Uh, That's interesting. I haven't been asked that, but I would have to say, of course, because I feel like they were so empowered. And even a learning curve I had writing for that show, and I think that a lot of Jews have maybe is that we're just self-deprecating by nature. That's where a lot of my humor came from. And especially as a woman, it was self-deprecating. And they're not self-deprecating. They're empowered. And I think there's that episode where Carrie... I still talk about them in the first person. I mean, they're still very much in my life. <laughs> where Carrie, you, did you ever read that Onion piece where some it's like someone didn't know the acronym for a show, someone didn't recognize it in a bar and they take offense. That's how I felt talking <laughs> about Carrie. So anyway, there was this episode where Carrie dates someone and realizes she might be having sex for the wrong reasons. Right. Just to get her own self-esteem up as opposed to for the right reasons. I feel like they examined things that way and in a positive way and they were empowered and they took ownership of their decisions. I think so too. I'm not sure what prompted the question. I just feel like so much of the art that I loved from that era, now people revisit it and tear it down for political reasons. And I I haven't rewatched the show in the last yeah. two years. I've just sort of, I don't know, I thought it was something you might have thought about. But Yeah, it's, well, I feel proud to have done that show because I feel like it was a female-centric and from the female point of view in a way that many shows had not been. So mm-hmm. I think that was the beginning of... Uh, or not the beginning, but at least part of taking ownership and feeling empowered and feeling like we had a voice. And that's really the key to the whole 
Yeah. Too, and also the centrality of female friendships yes. and female relationships in that. And also obviously this movie, which is about, you know, these, it's about their sons too, but it's about these three mothers who beyond being mothers together, sometimes wonder if they even have anything in common. Right. Right. Cause the idea is that they became friends because of their sons. Because of their, right. of their sons. Yeah. To me, that was an interesting thing. So, you know, Americans have always had a, a good sense of what a family or a family life was like from watching TV. And, your work really uh, has always been kind of instrumental in, in kind of examining and re-examining this idea of family, a- anywhere from, you know, Raymond to Modern Family, yeah, of course. Yeah. Do, do you stop and think about how that kind of work and that kind of attempt to sort of redefine what a family looks like, how that changed, like, the cultural perception in the last, say, 20 years? Well, I feel really lucky to have worked on the shows that I've worked on and worked with the people I worked with, because I do feel like that's been a changing conversation in television so often helps move us forward. I mean, certainly Modern Family helped people who didn't necessarily accept the idea that a, that their son or that, a, you know, that someone could be gay, thought of it more as a choice, like just normalized it there. They were just one of the couples in that show and parents. And I think by normalizing it just helps move us along. And you start to love these characters, no matter what your prejudices were. Yeah. Totally. That helped us accept the fact that a woman as gorgeous as Julie <laughs> Bowen would marry Phil Dunphy. <laughs> I like oh, that I thought you were going to say yeah. Sophia Vergara. Yeah. I love that you, yeah, Julie is well, gorgeous no, because, also. Because, you know... Uh, yeah, it, no, I get it. There's something to, to Mr. Al Bundy that yeah. I can absolutely see. <laughs> oh, you know. there you go. Yeah. Well, you also, as an essayist and writer, have been very attentive to the question of marriage, and you've you've written about uh, we, the three of us often, you know, monetize and parade our own uh, family issues. Uh, monetize as, is, is stretching it. <laughs> we're aiming to monetize. Um, we we You have a book, The Longest Date, Life as a Wife, and you've done, uh, you know, essays for, for many publications. One of your uh, New York Times essays was read by Pamela Adler oh, in, in their Modern Love podcast. Yes. So you married your, your current husband, your second husband, kind of later in the game um, and then had a child. I was so entranced by that those interviews that you did and the, and the writing that you've done about the finances between the two of you because you had, you know, you had some cash, you had some it's cashish. It's still an issue. He was just telling me about a pro bono case he's taking on and I was like, pro bono. Pro bono, <laughs> right? Aren't you pro bono? <laughs> you your, are my pro bono case. He's your pro bono case? No, so, but I love him. He does all the right things for social justice, but it's not very lucrative. <laughs> so, but I mean, here's the thing. So I'm going to, I'm going to push you a little bit here. So I, was, I feel like I've marinated in your thinking about this and Tell me if this is a fair summation that you had some issues to overcome about being not just the breadwinner, but a lot of the bread. Like there was a lot of bread on one side and debt on the negative bread on the other. Yeah. And I'm listening to this and I'm thinking like, and I know this is ignorant, right? Obviously. But in my kishkas, I'm thinking, well, if there's enough money to go around, who like that should be the easiest thing in the world. Like you've got money. He's not stealing money. He's not fritter. He's not defrauding you. He's just no. makes less. In fact, he insisted on a prenup that made it very clear that he was like leaving with the shirt on his back. So like, prove... what's the problem? Well, well, I heard the matchmaker on your show. I, I am not the actually. But to be honest, it wasn't an issue for me when we first married. I actually felt like I had this life that I loved and just adding a man to it was kind of great. Like suddenly I had a guy to go on vacations with and I had a date for parties. And, yeah. You know, like I had someone to have a family. With. It felt like I was just adding exactly what you're saying and not detracting at all. Um, and I still feel that way very much, but just these sort of old 
things crop up, like, shouldn't then I be able to decide what vacation we're taking if it's mostly my money? <laughs> you just have these thoughts that you're not sure are okay to have, but you still have them. Well, I love that you write about this because I think we're so programmed to be like, don't talk about money, like, blah, 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 keep it under wraps. And actually for a woman to be like, I'm successful, my husband has debt. And like what that actually means, I think is actually quite like you're taking it out of the closet in a lot of ways and saying like, this is something people think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like it's not the main thing at all. I mean, of course, I loved him He's for so many reasons, and he's always on the right side of every issue, and he defended Guantanamo Bay detainees before it was popular, (laughs) (laughs) before people understood most of them. Before they were even there. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I feel like there's so much you bring, and kind of the currency of happiness, and, you know, are are you interested, and do you have passion for what you do? And there's so many things about him I would rather have than somebody who just had a lot of money. But every once in a while, I think as a woman, you... As the way that matchmaker said, you you know, sometimes you, I think it was your guest who said you want like a bigger guy just to feel taken care of. I think there is something about, especially if you're a successful woman, that you do kind of want to feel taken care of in whatever way that happens. And once in a while, that might feel like you wish it was money. And especially now that we have a kid and there's school and there's just a lot to, it's a lot to, I guess it's things men have wrestled with always, <laughs> but they were comfortable in that role of like breadwinning and providing. And But it's a lot of stress to figure out how to keep everybody afloat. I totally admire the candor, but I got to say, I was desperate to marry someone with a lot more money than I had. Like not, <laughs> nothing would have made me. Ha- I mean, I married someone who went to Yale Law School. She doesn't. She does super duper pro bono work. She's like probably the least well compensated person in her lawsuit. But <laughs> I married someone who could have made a ton more money than I could ever make. And I was like, sweet, because that way I can sit around and like read poetry That's and right. podcast. And, yes. you know, like I had no issues. The life. No issue with that whatsoever. So are you pro I don't think Ian has an issue with it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like <laughs> you married a modern man. Are, and he's doing well now, I shouldn't say. Are you pro prenup? Should there be more prenups out there? Uh, I've never heard anyone up, own up to a prenup. Well, just because he offered it up, you know, it wasn't like I said, I He wanted demand. you to say no, though. Oh, did he? Oh, yeah. He wanted you to be like, I'm insulted. So I would like, I'll offer to pay on the first day. Yeah. I'll split it. You wait. You said yes to the premium. Oh, I said absolutely. Oh, that wasn't what he thought. He, that's not how he thought it was going to go down. You know what? I feel like I am pro prenup, and this is so strange to say. But anyway, we had a rough year. Like, we had a rough year, and we kind of examined how life would look like if we weren't together. And, um, Remember how I said I like really liked my life and I was just adding someone? It really felt like, oh, so I could have the same life and just subtract someone. <laughs> my life would not change drastically. And it was kind of, we, you know, have decided to like work on things and stay together. And I love him and I'm so happy we're, we didn't make that decision. But it felt like then I was free to just make the decision to stay with him because I want to stay with him mm-hmm. from my perspective. Mm-hmm. And my mom, I feel like there was a generation of women who couldn't divorce or wouldn't divorce because they just didn't know what who they would be and how they would support themselves. And it was kind of nice to feel like that wouldn't be the case. Sid and I can't divorce because of the dogs. Oh, yeah. We would, well, of like, course. Neither one of us could leave the, the dog. We would, we would stay in an unhappy household forever to stick with <laughs> Yeah, the, the five dogs. children you could split up evenly, but <laughs> two and a half each. How does your husband feel about, like, you airing this? Probably not good. And so don't maybe. <laughs> we won't play this. He won't hear this. <laughs> Wait, really? Uh, no, he's, you know, very successful and confident. And I And he's very handsome. Very handsome. And, um, of course, Mark Google him of course i mean when i wrote my book that was kind of the truth about marrying late in life and all the adjustments i had to make letting someone into my life the main comment i got was um how did you find someone so dreamy and ian was joking there was going to be like an ianisdreamy.com website Mm. and actually ianisdreamy.com leads to his legal website 
just as a joke. But he actually is a very great, loving, supportive husband and has made me re-examine a lot of these things that I thought, you know, were important or weren't important. The movie is called Otherhood. It is on Netflix. Cindy Shupak, thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. Thank you. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Unorthodox at tabletmag.com. That's unorthodox at T-A-B-L-E-T-M-A-G.com. Hey, just because Liel and Stephanie aren't here, that's no reason not to do some mail. Longtime listener and correspondent Sally Zilberstein wrote to us about the parking question. Do Jews back into the parking space or pull in front first? Sally writes, Jews do park backwards. My Israeli ex-brother-in-law always parked backwards. It wasn't a Holocaust thing. It was more a terrorist thing. You never know when you need to get out quick or when your unit might get called up. Also, think about it. When you back in, you have two standing still objects that you have to maneuver between. When you back out, you have cars coming at you from three directions. If you don't have a backup camera, you can't see what cars are coming from where. Plus, they don't care if they see you backing out. They're not going to stop. Same with pedestrians. It's much safer to back in and then pull out forward. Okay, Sally, look, 
I know what it's like to back out. Remember, I do that all the time. I'm aware of everything that's coming from every direction. And yet I've never hit a person or another car. So obviously it's doable. Nevertheless, I take your point that if you're afraid the terrorists are coming or if your unit might get called up, then there might be a good reason to back into the parking spot. Amory Meltzer writes to us, I don't know who said it, but as far as New York City goes, isn't the line that you can have a full-time job or park on the street, but you can't have both. (laughs) Amory, I've never heard that before in my life, but it's kind of brilliant. Send your mail to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us, leave a voicemail, 914-570-4869. Hi, everyone. Uh, It is your associate producer, Sarah Fredman-Ader, here with Josh. While all the hosts have been traveling around the world, we decided to sneak in and have a little bit of fun recording ourselves. We really wanted to to thank all of you and talk about two important things. The first is uh, you've heard for the past month about our listener survey that we were conducting and you really, really responded. We got a ton of responses that we're still sorting through, but they really connected to us emotionally. I was a super fan of this podcast from day one. I only came to work here uh, back in March, which has been such an incredible experience, but What I get to see now is uh, how amazing this thing is that I get to be a part of. Um, We are, for so many, their connection to Judaism when they live somewhere where there aren't lots of Jews. We are the the people telling you that you, the way that you are is just the right way to be Jewish. You don't need to be anyone else's idea of a Jew. We're helping uh, interfaith families understand each other's backgrounds, and we're uh, a source for people going through the conversion process. Apparently an inspiration for some people to actually just make that final plunge and go through with their conversion. And we love all of you. Thank you so much for um, taking the time and telling us what we mean to you. And we're just taking this time to let you all know what you mean to us. The other thing that we wanted to tell you is that we are still running our fund drive, which you can go to tabletmag.com slash donate, which lets you get right there. And any amount helps. Uh, one of the things that I think even the hosts don't appreciate is what it allows me and Sara to do whether it's when we have somebody who's doing a phone call rather than you having to listen to what a phone sounds like, most of the time we're sending out engineers on their end to record that side, and that costs money. Or it's me going and pitching new pieces produced elsewhere. When we have special episodes coming, it gives us the resources to go do that. It's letting us record more often, which lets us have more to say and Every once in a while, somebody will say on Facebook that episodes are creeping up longer and just about everyone's like, that's great. I want more. Well, this is really what lets us do more. So we really appreciate anything you can do, everything you can do at tabletmag.com slash donate. So thanks again. All right, a little while ago, Stephanie sat down with Aaron Davis, who hosts the dating show Bubbies Know Best, and one of the Bubbies was with them as well, S.J. Mendelson. The premise of the show, as I said earlier, is that grandmothers meet a contestant, ask some questions, and then get the right perfect date for them. Here's Stephanie talking with the host and one of the Bubbies. I'm here with Aaron Davis, host of the new dating show, Bubbies Know Best, and S.J. Mendelson, one of the Bubbies featured on the show. The show airs on Jewish Life Television. Welcome to you both. Hello. Shalom. I'd love it if you guys could each introduce yourself and say what your role is on the show. 
Hi, my name's S.J. Mendelson. I'm one of the Bubbies. There were three of us. And I'm Aaron Davis. I'm the host. So how exactly does this show work? Good question. Why don't you give the repartee, I darling? Agree. Well, I kind of like to think of it as the America's Got Talent of reality dating shows. We have three super sassy judges. We have SJ, who's here with us today. We have Bunny. She just found out recently that she is 50% Jewish thanks to a DNA test. So we have her as the sweet one. She offers that. Um, and then we have Cantor Linda. Linda has been, um, she was a cantor for over 25 years, I think it is. Right. And she's kind of our wise one. She's the nice one. I ain't so nice. <laughs> no. And then we have sassy Bubby here in person today. So we have three Bubby judges. And then we have one lucky suitor every episode. And this suitor is looking for love. And it's the Bubby's job to interview three potential dates and decide who they think is most compatible. And each episode, what's so spectacular, each episode is a different theme, let's say. So we have a lesbian episode, we have a senior episode, we have a gay men episode. You name it, we got it. 20s through 60s. Yes. And 70s. So how did you both get involved? Oh, I got really lucky. I actually called my cousin on the phone once, who's an orthodontist, when I had a wisdom tooth break off. And he was sitting in the room with um, one of the employees of uh, JLTV. And he just said, who's on the phone? And they handed it over to me. And he started talking to me about my work in New York as a Jewish uh, wing woman. Um, I hold Shabbat dinners where I set up singles in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. He was fascinated by this, and he said, you've got to come to L.A., and um, we want to interview you. I think I have an idea. And he actually had me kind of audition in person for the hosting slot, and that was it. So it was kind of fate. I call it beshert the way that yeah. it was. It worked out that way. What about that you, That is Esther? literally the most Jewish thing I've ever is heard. <laughs> I called your orthodontist uncle, who had a, a TV yes. executive in the chair, yes. <laughs> who then gave you a job yes. in Hollywood. That was it. It's the Jewish-American dream. What about right. you, SJ? Well, there was a casting in one of the casting networks online that called for, like, Jewish grandmas and... Uh, <laughs> I understand there were a lot of people that applied for this or auditioned for it, and then they had us make a tape of why we think we would be good at this. And then four of us were brought in, and they wanted to see how we would work together, and that was it. The fourth one decided she didn't want to do it. So there could have been four Bubbies, but there was three, and that was it. And so this isn't your first foray into the entertainment world, right? Me? No, mm -hmm. I've been in, in, in entertainment on and off for um, 40 years. Took off to raise my son, came back seven years ago. SJ, I'm curious, do you think the advice of Bubbies, particularly when it comes to dating, is more important now than ever with all the apps and all the things that are, that are going on? I think that if you listen to your Bubby, you'll do very well because the apps of swiping like this and that right and left, who knows what that is? But I used to sit on my grandma's knee, grandma, what should I do? Grandma, I didn't call this grandma Bubby, but my grandchildren call me Bubby. But yes, I think that it's very important to listen to somebody who is wise and older and could give you good dating advice. You know, as SJ said, it's not about your own Bubby. What I love about the show, that every Bubby has something um, to learn from. And that's what I think is so spectacular. I love my own Bubby. She's 95. She's a Holocaust survivor. Uh, I wish I listened to her more when I was younger. Um, there's a lot of wisdom into what she has to say, but other Bubbies are just as wise and you don't have to just learn from your own. That's what's so great about this show. This is true. Have you always been giving dating advice? 
I I always have. I've always been in relationships since I was 19. My grandmother was a matchmaker. Her name was Gittel Bernstein. She matched. People would come to her. She had a stand on, in Brooklyn on 13th <laughs> Avenue and 40th Street. They'd come and say, Gittel, can you please find us a husband, find us a wife? She always said, like, it didn't matter if he had a club foot, he would make up for it in bed. <laughs> Or there's a garbage can for every cover. <laughs> oh, that's great. So I've watched a few of the episodes, and these are some of the questions the Bubbies have asked the contestants and their potential suitors. How important is it for you to marry a Jewish person? How do you feel about bacon? And would you do it before marriage? So what are some of the things the Bubbies are trying to suss out, you know, with questions like those and other things? Well, I think basically it's like, do you eat bacon or don't you? Are you kosher or are you not kosher? Will you sleep with the person? Because I think you should. But let's say Linda, who is phenomenal person, sweet, she doesn't believe in that. She does not believe in sleeping with someone before marriage. I do. What can I say? Erin, for you too, what do you think that the Bubbies are really trying to get at with, with I think, their questioning? I think Bubbies know what's going to make it in the long run. They have incredible experiences to draw from. And I think what they're trying to do is find the quickest way to suss out uh, what will make for longevity, what will really make for uh, a match. And I think something as simple as, do you like bacon? And coming from uh, the fact that I am a dating coach as well, I ask that question. And it says a lot more than just, do you eat pork? It says, well, is this someone who's going to have a kosher kitchen, as SJ said, uh, which goes into how will you raise your children? Will you be raising them the same way? They're thinking way ahead. The Bubbies are really good at thinking of a real match, real compatibility here. I always like to say once they go out on the first date, they should always go out on a second date because in the first date, you're meeting them. You don't really know them. You're eating dinner. You're spilling soup on someone's lap. You don't know he didn't iron his shirt. His shoes weren't shined. I think that you need to go out on the second date just to give it a chance to see what's going to happen. You can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That was an issue. One of the guys did not iron his shirt. Or, and his shoes were all scuffed. I know. I, I saw that unironed shirt. I'm like, where's your iron? Why don't you iron your shirt before you come on the show? It's literally, you're going on TV. Yeah, come on and polish your shoes. So what do you think that young people now are doing wrong? Like a guy who just has a rumpled shirt. What are the, the sort of the quick, easy things that you think we could be doing to just make ourselves more appealing? Iron your shirt, <laughs> right? Polish your shoes. People have so many choices today that they get confused. There's just too many options for people today. It boggles my mind. You know, in my grandmother's day, you were matched and you didn't see them before you got married. You you saw them right at the chuppah. So there you go. And, you know, you've, you've learned to fall in love with them. See, I think young people are doing a lot wrong these days um, and... I'm one of them, but I I don't think it's anyone's fault. I think it's actually a cultural shift. I think it's technology, as you said. I think it's apps. I think it's going online. And what I love about Bubby's No Best, it goes back to the basics. It goes back to let's just meet in person. Let's trust people that know us. Let's trust Bubby's instead of just going online and playing the checkbox syndrome. To me, that's the biggest thing that young people do these days. They have these filters and they're applying them to human beings. Do you fit in this age window? Are you um, over 5'10"? All these simple, dumb things instead of just let's trust chemistry again. So I think the Bubbies help tap into that. So can you explain what the Bubbies do on the show and then... What happens after that? 
Well, we ask questions of each of the daters. We have a suitor, could be a man or a woman. We ask them different questions about their likes. It's like the old dating game in the old days. There was like Jim Lang had the dating game, although you really don't see the people. So we ask them all sorts of questions. What do you like? What are your dislikes? Have you been married before? Why haven't you been married before? You know, just many, many different questions that we shoot at them. So the bubbies deliberate. We yeah. call it a, a very heated deliberation. The three bubbies get together after all three um, potential dates are interviewed and they hash it out. And sometimes it's a unanimous vote. It's incredible. Other times it is divided. It's like one forget to one about to one. it. And we cannot go into the final round if it is one to one to right. one, which means one bubby is going to have to shift. And we actually feature on the show the deliberation as it happens, as two people have to come together and agree and that may mean that they're teaming up on one Bubby, but we have to go into that final round and announce a winner. So this that is means, true. We yes. have to. Are there different like clicks the way it works out? You mean the Bubby Between, click? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I think. <laughs> like whose opinion are you most likely to align with? Do you uh, think? Me, I probably oh. will align most with Bunny. Mm -hmm. Don't I? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I usually align most with you, SJ, to be honest. Um, I take a Ooh. lot of her more modern day stances on the sex thing that we talked about yeah. earlier. I usually find that I agree with SJ the most, too. But my I, I don't have an, a say in this too much. I want this to be about the bubbies. I have so much to learn from them. Mm. What am I doing? Piping in. But I do have to say that I probably end up aligning with you, SJ. Well, thank you so much, Erin. Yeah. You're so gorgeous. <laughs> so then the, the two... People go out on a date. They go and, out on a date and we get to watch. Oh, my gosh. We are a fly on the we're, wall. We're like sitting there watching them <laughs> and like, you know. <laughs> and critiquing what you see. Oh, I, I, you're not. Yeah. They're like, I'm, I like the fact that a lot of times they're not doing a lot of PDA on the first date. Give it a break. Absolutely. You I know, think that we shouldn't have PDA no, at all at on all. a first yeah, I date. I agree with that. Keep it short. Keep it simple That's and get exactly, to know each other. I always say it's like a job interview. You're interviewing the person for a job, husband or wife. Do you kiss your potential boss on an interview? <laughs> I no, don't think so. Yeah, exactly. No. <laughs> no, you don't kiss your potential boss. No. So on one of the dates, one of the puppies said, this is boring. This conversation is boring. Change it up. How do you think we should be acting on first dates? I don't know if it was. I don't know. I don't think I said that. Did I? I think say it might that? have been Linda. Oh, <laughs> it's. And you know what? I I actually think a lot of people go into it because interviews are boring. So yes, they do go into first dates, and it does get kind of boring. So I have to say I agree. But what I try to tell um, my clients here in New York and the people on the show is that dating is an adventure. This is fun. It's an interview, yes, per se, and that you would like to get to know the person, but the question should be fun. The interaction should be a blast for you. This is a chance to learn, even if there's no chemistry. Have fun, people. I think that's a big mistake a lot of people are making these days. It's not fun anymore. I want, we want to bring back the fun, bubbies. What did, what did they want? They want to get up on the table and dance? Would that not be boring? I, I don't know. I don't think that that's a... I don't find them boring at all. I find them interesting. I think the question. I think they were discussing like the things on the menu and like what they yes. like on menus and what they don't like on menus. Right, I remember that one. <laughs> right, I think it was yeah, David. Right, it with was the David wrinkled and Dana shirt and the, the Dana tacos. and the, and yeah. she dropped it up. Wait, she yeah. dropped the food on his shirt, and I said he didn't that iron was the it anyway. Rock out with your guac out. Yeah, right, right, that's up. right. Yeah. <laughs> Since the, the show started airing um, in February, I'm so curious what the, what has happened to your life since then. Do people recognize you? Do people ask you 
for your advice and Aaron for you are people you know coming to your 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 own personal business through this so i'm i'm really lucky in that my business has been flourishing the past couple of years i got to leave my full time um 9 to 6 job uh to do what i do and i'm very fortunate so it's just um, it's enhanced uh, the amount of Jewish work that I do. Uh, I had expanded into a bunch of different networks uh, here in New York and also in other cities. But the show has actually really helped me with my Jewish business, the Jewish part of it. So it's it's been really great. I've, I am able to do more Shabbat dinners. Um, I'm able to bring together uh, more young Jews. Wow. L'chaim. And do you yeah. feel like you would call up SJ if you needed her advice? Oh, um, I have. Really? I'm on set when the when the mics are out. I've gone up to her and I've asked her for dating advice, and she's very wise. She says it to me. She tell she tells it to me straight. SJ is just she's a straight shooter, and I respect that. And so is that for you or for your clients? Oh, for me. Oh wow. I I have come to her for personal stuff on the set. Yes, all the bubbies have something valued to me. To be honest, um, you know how they say three Jews, five opinions, or whatever on our set. It's it's three Jews and, and ten opinions. Um, but I think every opinion is valuable, and if you actually kind of sum it together and then take what your gut and what your own heart and head says and use these Bubby's wisdom, you come out really enlightened. And so, have there been any success stories from the show? People you know that are still seeing each other? I think Max, who was our, well, oh, he, the God. show hasn't been on yet. We'll no spoilers, th- no spoilers, but... Okay, it's possible. Yes. And I'm hoping the seniors really got together. We really matched some great seniors. So, so we've shot um, a full first season, and we just finished um, part B of season one, which has not aired yet. And we have to say, without giving away too many spoilers, I think we're getting better every episode yeah. as far as making matches. Oh, yeah. And I think there were some... There were some really, really fiery right, matches right, from Part B right. that you guys will have to see. When yes, definitely. So how do people watch this show? Let's see. It's on Comcast. I think it's on... Um, Spectrum. Spectrum. It might be on The Dish. You can watch Direct it on the internet. Direct TV. JLTV.TV. Uh, yep, yeah, you can. We actually have episode. There's links to watch episodes on, on JLTV.TV. Yeah. Also, if you have Roku, Smart TV, um, you can get Jewish yeah. Life Television. It airs um, on Mondays at 8 p.m. Uh, that's b- both Eastern Time and Pacific Time, 8 p.m. And then um, also we have reruns on at 7.30. Yeah. I was watching them last night yeah. in my hotel room. Like, oh, my God, it was Marty's episode. Marty the Comedian. Oh, you know, senior episode. Senior, I love that the one. The original senior episode that we had with, you know, Marty, who was just just a funny comedian you know he is just terrific so we did have that one oh, that was so great my yeah. grandma watches it every day and my bubby is 95 and she doesn't understand that we're showing reruns so she keeps calling me during the episode and she's like am i on air am i live i'm like no no grandma that that's a rerun i'm not in la right now filming but she watches every night and happens to think that it's live which is great it's not erin <laughs> davis sj mendelson thank you both for being here thank you l'chaim. and our listeners can catch uh bubby's no best on jltv.tv couldn't hide could help 
Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. If everybody gives something, the podcast will live forever. So go to tabletmag.com slash donate and give whatever you can. Just please give something. We think you should do that. Give something. Go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt to order our swag, our shirts, our mugs, our onesies, all that stuff. Join our Facebook group. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producer is Sarah Fredman Ader. Our editor is Melissa Kaplan. Social media is by Elazar Abrams, and our theme music is by Golem. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Shalom Rubanowitz of the Pacific Jewish Center, the Shul on the Beach in Venice, California. We come to you from Argo Studios, also known as the Flatiron Shul. Shalom, friends.